0: you <laughs> Welcome to the National Botanic Gardens at Glasnevin and this audio guided tour to some of the fascinating and unusual plants and stories in the gardens. I'm Mary Mulvihill from Ingenious Ireland, and with the director of the gardens, Matthew Jebb, it's our pleasure to guide you on this tour. We have several audio guided walks at Glasnevin, each one a different colour. If you don't already have an information leaflet for your tour, you can get one at the Visitor Centre. The tours last about 40 minutes to an hour and they all start just inside the main entrance gates. From there you simply follow the coloured sign for your tour. Then play the appropriate audio track when you get to the next point of interest. At the end of each track you'll hear this. And that's the signal to pause your player move to the next location and then press play to resume the story. Now, if you're ready, our tour starts just inside the main entrance gate. Join us there to hear about how the gardens began over 200 years ago. Red one for Couples of a Wicked Mind. The village of Glasnevin was founded in the 6th century by a saint, Saint Mowvie. But a thousand years later, in 1725, it had become a haven for rogues and for couples with wicked intent. At least, that was according to the Protestant Archbishop of Dublin. Yet, even as he wrote that, Glasnevin was changing, and three fine residences were being built along the Tolka River. Up on the hill, Sir John Rogerson, a wealthy Dublin politician and property developer, was building a country residence. Today, it's the home to the Holy Faith Convent and School. Across, at what is now the Bon Secours Hospital, was Delville, another residence and gardens it even boasted a herd of deer. Delville was home to a Protestant clergyman, the Reverend Delaney, and his English wife, Mrs. Mary Delaney. His friends included writers like Jonathan Swift, who was a regular visitor, while her London friends included King George III and his wife Queen Charlotte. Today, Mary Delaney is famous for her letters and for paper mosaic flowers that she made. These were beautiful works of botanical art, made from tissue paper that was dyed the exact color and copied from real specimens sent to her by Kew Gardens and the great botanists of the day. All told, she made 970 of these paper mosaics and they are now in the British Museum. The third substantial residence in Glasnevin then was here on the south bank of the river built by a minor English poet called Thomas Tickell. And in 1795 His estate was bought by the Royal Dublin Society to start their new Botanic Gardens. Thomas Tickell's Georgian Villa became the official residence for the Director of the Gardens and it still is today. You can hear more about Tickell, the origins of the Gardens and the Director's House on our yellow tour. When the Botanic Gardens began in 1795 the focus was on agriculture with hay meadows here and animals grazing. There is still a horticultural college here, run today by the Agriculture and Food Agency, Chagask. But the focus at Glasnevin Gardens now is on much more than farming. Matthew Jebb.
1: From the very beginning, botanic gardens have combined many roles. At their heart, they have always been about horticulture and demonstration, but gradually the roles of science, training and education have grown in the past two centuries. Today, plant species around the world face an uncertain future, with the threats of habitat destruction, over-exploitation and unprecedented climate change. Our most recent activities include a greater role in the conservation of our own flora, as well as of plants from around the world.
0: In 1878 the state took over the gardens and they have been a public garden ever since. They now cover nearly 20 hectares and over 17,000 different species and cultivars grow here. There are also thousands of dried and pressed plants in the herbarium. Today Glasnevin is internationally important and we can be proud of its many achievements and it's also a lovely place to visit. The founders would surely have been pleased. Red 2, the alphabet tree with many names.
1: This marvellous conifer has many names and a connection with an unusual alphabet. Some call it the Giant Sequoia, others Wellingtonia, after the Duke of Wellington, or the Sierra Redwood, the Mammoth Tree, or simply Big Tree. Botanists know it as Sequoia dendron giganteum, which translates as the Giant Sequoia Tree. The species is named after a remarkable Native American of the Cherokee Nation, Sequoia, Sequoia was a talented silversmith from Tennessee, and in the early 1800s he devised an alphabet for the Cherokee language. Until then, Sequoia himself was illiterate, but he recognised the value of written words used by the European settlers. His alphabet borrowed letters and numbers from English, but also had symbols of his own design. His invention meant that the Cherokee people could learn to read and write in their own language, Their literacy rates were soon better than the European settlers around them, and they even had their own newspaper. Sequoia trees come from California, the western side of the Sierra Nevada range. They're tall evergreens and can reach nearly 100 metres in height and 10 metres in diameter. That's about the same size as the railings around this tree. The wood is remarkably resistant to decay and was very popular in the 19th century. Huge numbers of trees were cut down to supply the building trade. The wood was used for everything, from foundations to the roof shingles. And this explains why so much of the city burnt after the great San Francisco earthquake in 1906. The alarming rate at which these trees were felled means that today there are fewer than 30,000 left in the wild. About half of them are protected in the Sequoia National Park. The first sequoia trees arrived in Europe in 1853 when an English plant collector returned with some seeds and when the first trees went on sale the following year it was a marketing sensation. The trees cost two guineas each which was equivalent to several weeks wages for a gardener then or you could buy six trees for ten guineas. Having one in your garden was quite a status symbol and most of the big Irish sequoias date from this time including this one. In the visitor centre, you can see a mighty slice from a tree that was over 1,300 years old when it was felled in Fresno in 1892. It's amazing to think that when that tree began life, St Columkill was founding his church on the island of Iona. Red 3, the
0: golden age of plant collecting.
1: China has one of the richest floras on earth, 31,000 species. That's almost one-eighth of the entire known flora of the world. And the first botanist to reveal this richness to the Western world was an Irishman, Augustin Henry. As you descend the steps to the Millstream, you pass on your left a north-facing slope that has been planted only with Chinese plants some of which were collected as seed in 2002 and 2004 on expeditions from the National Botanic Gardens when we retraced Augustine Henry's footsteps. Augustine Henry was born in 1857 and raised in County Tyrone. After studying natural sciences, he trained as a medical doctor knowing that the Imperial Customs Service in China was recruiting medics. In 1882, he travelled to the remote town of Yichang, which lies over 1,500 kilometres from the sea, up the Yangtze River, just below the fabled Three Gorges. During his nine years in Yichang, Henry uncovered an unexpected richness of plants in these mountains, growing in more or less the same climate as northern Europe. And this brought about what was to become known as the Golden Age of Plant Hunting he paved the way for later plant hunters like Ernest Wilson, George Forrest and Captain Frank Kingdon Ward who introduced living specimens of many of the plants Henry had first discovered. Our gardens have profited hugely from the magnificent magnolias, jasmines, camellias, wisteria and peonies that have all come from China. Later, when Augustine Henry returned from China, he became interested in forestry and in 1913, he became the first professor of forestry in what is now University College Dublin and helped to start the Irish Forestry Commission. It was Henry who realised that Sitka spruce and other species from northwest America were better suited to Ireland's climate than the Scandinavian species. He planted experimental rows of trees at Avondale Estate in County Wicklow, which you can still see today. We have a small display about Augustine Henry and his plant collecting and you can see it at the herbarium windows. It's stop number 10 on the yellow tour.
0: Red 4. Water Power, Ponds and Paper This small stream is a mill race, an artificial waterway made in the mid-1700s to power a paper mill. Dublin once had over a dozen paper mills. There were even two in Rathfarnham, all driven by the thirst for wrapping paper and the printed word. The statistical survey for the County of Dublin in 1800 names a Mr McElraith as the owner of the mill here at Glasnevin and this was the only mill in the village. The building stood on the site inside the gates on the east side of the stream. It was demolished in 1810, when the Royal Dublin Society bought the site to extend the Botanic Gardens to the river. When Mr McIlwraith had his mill here, paper was made from recycled cotton and linen rags. The rags were sorted by women and washed and boiled so a paper mill needed a good supply of water and the tolka was presumably important to McElwraith's mill and after washing the rags they were pounded for hours by heavy hammers to reduce them to a pulp which was then used to make the paper the heavy hammers were powered by this mill stream and the mill was presumably a source of some industrial noise in what was otherwise a small quiet village The RDS had no use for the paper mill, but they did have a use for the mill stream. They used it to water the glasshouses. And to lift the water up the hill to the glasshouses, they installed a hydraulic ram and a sluice gate, which is what you see here by the small bridge. The hydraulic ram is an ingenious device that lifts a stream of water up a height. It uses some of the energy from the stream, to power itself. No other fuel is needed and the only moving parts are a couple of valves so it's a clean green low maintenance device. The incoming flow of water builds up ahead of pressure and that's used to lift some of the water. That releases the pressure and the cycle starts all over again. The pump has a gentle pulsing mechanism and it's sometimes called the pulsation engine. Hydraulic rams were widely used in the 1800s in land drainage, waterworks and sewerage systems, but they went out of favour when electricity arrived. Now, however, with growing interest in renewable energy, people are rediscovering this simple technology. glass hydraulic ram is in the small, almost subterranean structure beside the bridge. The current engine dates from 1903, and there are plans to renovate the ram and once again harness the millstream to water the glasshouses. Red 5, a history of the world. If there is one plant that encompasses all of human history and civilization, it is the rose. Love and poetry, trade and commerce, battles and politics, the rose has it all. So come into the rose garden now, sit on a bench, and let us tell you the fascinating history of these beautiful flowers. People have been growing roses for thousands of years. And it's thought that the word rose comes from an ancient Persian word for flower. Egyptians were buried in their pyramids with wreaths of roses. Even Alexander the Great had a rose garden. Matthew Jeb.
1: In Europe, wild roses have just five petals, and the flowers are short-lived, dropping their petals in a couple of days. Their flowering period is also brief, with a single flush of flowers in early summer. Occasional plants in the wild have multiple petals, and these natural mutations were brought into cultivation many centuries ago and formed the first rose gardens. During the Middle Ages, other rose species from as far afield as Persia were soon growing in gardens across Europe. The most important of these was the damask rose, whose flowers were richly scented, and some forms of damask even had a second flowering period at the end of summer.
0: After the fall of Rome, during the Dark Ages, roses became a luxury for the few, although monks grew some roses in their herb gardens for their perceived medicinal properties, and the hips were a useful source of vitamin C. Perhaps the best known roses in history are England's symbolic roses, the Tudor Rose formed by the marriage of the White Rose of York and the Red Lancastrian Rose. But these flowers were the same as the roses that were grown in ancient times. All that changed in the late 1700s when Chinese roses arrived in Europe.
1: Roses had been brought into cultivation in China long before they became a popular plant in European gardens and the Chinese cultivars had characteristics unknown in European roses. They included yellow coloured roses, a colour completely unknown at the time amongst European plants. These were introduced in the 18th century and became an exotic addition for the rose breeders of Europe. Perhaps the most significant introduction was that of Rosa chinensis, the china rose. This species flowers continuously throughout the summer. It was this feature of perpetual flowering that brought about a profound change in the popularity and value of roses and turned them into one of the most important garden plants in Europe. Rose growing was popularised in the early 1800s by Josephine, wife of the Emperor Napoleon, with her famous rose garden at Malmaison outside Paris, and Napoleon's officers were ordered to bring back any interesting roses they found on their campaigns.
0: In 1867 there was another landmark with the hybrid tea rose. After this we have modern roses and everything before that date is an old rose. The hybrid tea was a compact shrub with excellent blooming and it was formed by crossing a tea rose and a hybrid perpetual. And then finally in the 20th century we get the floribundas with their abundant blooms. Today there are over 30,000 varieties of rose around the world and here at Glasnevin we grow nearly 300 forms. Roses are native to the northern hemisphere but travellers have now brought them to every corner of the world. Roses have inspired poetry and songs and rose is a popular girl's name and as Shakespeare wrote a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. At Glasnevin, there is one special rose in front of the director's house near the entrance. It is a cutting from the shrub that inspired Thomas Moore's famous song, The Last Rose of Summer, and that song is the theme music for our tour. Red Six, Kingfishers and Sparrowhawks don't just get plants here in the Botanic Gardens. Glasnevin is also home to lots of wildlife, from otters and foxes to kingfishers and sparrowhawks. There are several different types of habitat around the gardens, including grasslands and hedgerows, woodlands, and the river here at the garden's northern edge. This is the Talca River. It's Dublin's second biggest river after the Liffey. It rises in County Meath and it flows through Dublin to enter the sea at the North Strand. It has a fairly gentle gradient, and it's usually a quiet river, but from time to time we get bad flooding here, as local residents can tell you, so it's no surprise that the river's Irish name is Antulca, meaning the flood. Down here beside the river is a good place to watch for wildlife at any time of the year. Lynn Anderson is one of the guides in the garden and a keen naturalist.
2: We are very lucky to have plenty of um, animals and birds in the gardens. Um, One of the things that we're we're very proud of is our kingfishers. Um, We have, uh, if you're lucky, you might see a kingfish on the river. If you do see it, it'll probably be just a flash of blue flying uh, fast and low down the river. Uh, You might hear it. It's got a a double note sort of seat, seat call, quite low call. But if you do see it or hear it, try to see where it goes. Try to watch where it perches and you might get a better view of it. You're most likely to see them in spring and summer. In wintertime, it gets a little bit cold for them and they head down for the coast. Other water birds you might see here are some of the more common ones. We have plenty of mallard ducks here on both the pond and in the river. You'll also see some moorhen, little strutting birds with bright red bills. You might see mute swans maybe on the river from time to time. We've plenty of herons here in the river and on the pond. And you might be lucky to see a cormorant. And most of these are fishing birds because we have fish in the river, despite being an urban river. Mostly brown trout, lots of little fish as well, some sticklebacks. You'll find sticklebacks in the ponds, one of the favourites of the kingfishers. So you will see plenty of small birds in the garden, lots of the little flocks of finches and and tits and robins, starlings, blackbirds, all of these birds. Of course there are birds that eat these birds. We have a, a family of sparrowhawks in the garden. They love to eat all the little birds, anything up to the size of a wood pigeon, so keep an eye out for them. You might hear them, sometimes uh, in the breeding season particularly, you would hear that very high-pitched sort of a pshhh call, very much uh, like a sparrowhawk. So keep an eye out and an ear out for those.
0: But it's not just birds. The gardens are also home to a family of red foxes and lots of squirrels, as you've probably seen, and the occasional otter down here by the river.
2: Yeah, we're very delighted to have otters here in the gardens, and if you're lucky, you might see them. They do tend to come out just at dusk and dawn. You'll see them sometimes just swimming along the edge of the river, and if you don't see them, you might hear them. They have a a sort of a whistling call when they're calling to each other, a little bit like the sparrowhawk we mentioned earlier. It's like a little call, so have a listen for that, and if you're very lucky, you might see one as well. Another thing that you probably have seen in the garden is the grey squirrels, much more common, of course, than the otter. These are American grey squirrels. They are an invasive species, but they're cute little animals. They've replaced our native red squirrels. So by all means, do look at them. They're cute animals, but don't get too close. We'd ask you not to feed them, and and they can bite. So, So look and admire from a distance. And in springtime, if you look in the pond, you might see some frog spawn and maybe some tadpoles. And of course they grow into frogs and later on in the season have a look on the pond and in the river for fully grown frogs. you see our lovely native frogs hopping around the gardens.
0: Lynn Anderson has a special interest in the birds in the gardens and from time to time leads bird safaris around the gardens. You have to book in advance but ask at the visitor centre for details about the next one. Red 7, the soul of a plant. The statue of Socrates, or Socrates as some younger visitors call him, stands here beside the Talca River. We don't know why the statue's here, but Socrates did have one fatal brush with botany, because, as many people will know, He died by drinking poison hemlock. Matthew Jebb.
1: Hemlock is a member of the carrot family, or umbellifers, so called because they have flower heads or umbels that are like little upturned umbrellas. Hemlock can grow to be two metres tall, and it's related to carrots, parsnip and parsley. But unlike these edible species, hemlock is deadly poisonous every part of the plant contains powerful neurotoxins and eating just a few leaves or some seeds or a piece of the root can be enough to kill you.
0: Poison hemlock was a form of execution in ancient Athens and it was the sentence handed down to Socrates in 399 BC when the 70-year-old philosopher was found guilty of impiety for not believing in the gods of Athens and for corrupting the youth with his philosophical questions. The neurotoxin in hemlock paralyses your muscles. First the extremities, your feet and legs, then eventually your heart and diaphragm, and you stop breathing. These days, with a ventilator, we can keep a victim alive for the two or three days until the poison wears off. But there was no such option for Socrates and Plato's account of his death is thought to be an accurate account of hemlock poisoning. But there is another connection between ancient Greek philosophers and plants. Matthew Jebb.
1: Aristotle thought that every living being had a soul, not just animals and people, but also plants. Theophrastus, one of Aristotle's pupils, spent many years inquiring into plants and we regard him as the father of botany, since his ideas were original and accurate and were not improved upon for nearly 2,000 years. Like his master Aristotle, he was a disciple of the peripatetic school, literally meaning they walked around as they discussed these problems and ideas, much as we are doing right now. Theophrastus even thought about where the soul of the plant must reside. He concluded that it was not in the roots or stems, since these could be cut off and the plant would continue to grow. So he concluded it must be at the base of the stem, right at ground level, in exactly the place where the plant had begun life from the seed.
0: But the main philosopher associated with the Glasnevin gardens is Ludwig Wittgenstein, the 20th century Austrian philosopher. In the late 1940s, He liked to come and sit in the warmth of the palm house and a plaque on the steps there marks his favourite spot. It's appropriate that Socrates is remembered with a stone statue because, as well as being a soldier and philosopher, he was also a stonemason. You'll find more works of sculpture around the gardens, especially in September when Glasnevin hosts the biggest outdoor exhibition of sculpture in Ireland. Red 8, the Phenological Garden.
1: At the gardens, we have a special group of 25 or so trees and shrubs that we follow carefully through the seasons to see when their first leaf bud breaks, their flowers open, or their leaves fall in the autumn. Here on the banks of the Tolka, for example, we have three Norway spruce. Each carries a green label, which makes them part of our phenological garden. Phenology is the study of seasonal events in the life cycle of plants and animals. In the case of these spruce trees, we note the date on which the new shoots elongate each year. In the past, this has varied between the 20th of April and the 10th of May. Plants follow the seasons, putting out their new leaves in spring, flowering, fruiting and then, in the case of deciduous plants, losing their leaves for the winter. The dates when this happens depends upon several factors. In particular, day length and temperature. Today we know that temperature is no longer as constant as we once thought and these trees help us to understand the climatic changes that are happening here in Ireland. Glasnevin is part of a European-wide phenological network stretching from the Mediterranean to Scandinavia. And we've been recording these dates since 1965. The data provides one of the best examples of how climate change is affecting plants. Climate change is bringing about a slow but definite change in the timing of these natural events. Bud break of some tree species is happening two or even three weeks earlier than when records began in 1965. Leaves are also staying on the trees later in the autumn, so the growing season of these plants has extended. And it's not just the timing of new leaves that has changed. Flowers of some trees and herbs are also opening earlier, and some plants bear blossoms for far longer than they did before. Normally, the sequence of all these natural events is synchronised. It's important, for example, that the pollinator of a plant hatches or emerges from hibernation just as the flowers are opening. Likewise, birds need to return from migration just after their food source emerges, arrive too early or too late, and they might starve. The changes that we see happening in nature are already throwing these things out of step. We'll continue to observe these trees in the future, and they're a great testament to those who had the foresight to set up this scheme long before anyone had heard of climate change. Red 9,
0: The Chain Tent step into this lovely pergola and look at the wisteria plants that are twisting their way up the structure some of the plants are twisting in a clockwise spiral and others go counterclockwise they are actually two different types of wisteria see if you can spot them the clockwise one is Japanese wisteria called wisteria floribunda and the stems that go counterclockwise are Chinese wisteria wisteria sinensis. These plants are actually nearly 200 years old so no wonder they look twisted and wizened. They were planted in the 1830s when this chain tent was erected and they've been here since. Matthew Jebb.
1: They've grown so well and so strong that they've become part of the structure and this pergola is now half wisteria and half metal and it can be hard to make out the chains above your head that are supporting the plants. The centre of the tent was originally a tall, weeping ash tree, but it died and has been replaced with a rather more mundane metal post. There are plans to replant a tree at the centre of the tent. You need a strong support for wisteria, because the plants are not only very strong climbers, they become heavy with age and can easily strangle a tree. The chain tent was designed by Ninian Niven, director of the gardens here from 1834 to 1838 and with its original central tree, it must have been a spectacular sight. It was a typically unusual flourish from someone who was to become one of the greatest Irish landscape designers of the 19th century.
0: Wisterias are beautiful climbing vines and they're members of the pea family. They produce great hanging clusters of flowers in shades of white and violet and blue and the flowers can be beautifully fragrant. This pergola is a stunning sight when the wisteria is in flower from late spring into summer, but even in winter it has its own special attraction. Red 10, the handkerchief tree.
1: The handkerchief tree has to be one of the most spectacular flowering trees to come out of China, and one could say that it was responsible for launching the golden age of plant hunting in Asia. The first European botanist to see this tree was a French missionary priest, Père David. David was an avid naturalist, and he collected plants and animals throughout his missionary work in China. The handkerchief tree was named Davidia in his honour, and was one of many new animals and plants he sent back to Europe, including the first giant panda. David made an elegant drawing of the huge white flowers of the handkerchief tree in the 1860s. But it wasn't until 25 years later that the Irish plant hunter Augustine Henry came upon a second specimen. Henry's pressed and dried specimen was sent to the herbarium at the Royal Botanic Gardens Kew, And it was there that Sir Harry Vetch, a London-based nurseryman, saw the specimens and recognised the commercial possibilities of this tree. If only he could introduce living plants to European and American gardens. So, in 1898, Harry Vetch employed a young Scottish gardener, Ernest Wilson, to travel to China as a plant collector. His instructions were simple but surprisingly secretive. You are to collect a quantity of seeds of a plant the name of which is known to us. This is the object. Do not dissipate time, energy or money on anything else. And it was only after his arrival in China that an agent for Vetch's nurseries told him that the plant was none other than Père David's handkerchief tree, and that his instructions were to first find Augustine Henry, then based in the far west of China, and find out where he had collected the specimen he had sent to Kew. By that time, Augustine Henry had seen the tree twelve years earlier and had to draw a map from memory. When Ernest Wilson finally reached the site many weeks later, he found nothing but a huge stump, as the tree had been felled to build the temple. Poor Wilson, he must have wept, but thankfully found other trees in the area and he was able to send the sought-after seeds back to London. He spent a total of three years in China and collected thousands of plants new to cultivation, ushering in a 40-year period when the gardens of Europe and America were transformed by plant introductions every bit as beautiful as the handkerchief tree. You'll have to return in May if you want to see this handkerchief tree laden with its crop of handkerchiefs.
0: That's nearly the end of this tour, but we hope to see you here again soon. We've other guided tours of the gardens for you to enjoy, and there's always lots to see and discover at Glasnevin throughout the year, even in winter, and a busy programme of seasonal events and activities for every age. Ask at the Visitor Centre, or check the event guide on the web at botanicgardens.ie. This was an Ingenious Ireland production, Written by the Gardens director Matthew Jebb and me, Mary Mulvihill of Ingenious Ireland. The music you heard was The Last Rose of Summer, recorded by the Thomas Moore Festival and performed by Mairead Hurley and soprano Aoife O'Sullivan. The tour was funded by the Department of Tourism, Culture and Sport under the Cultural Technology Grant Scheme in 2010. Sound production was by Twin Track Media. For more Ingenious Guided Tours and for the smartphone apps for the gardens, visit ingeniousireland.ie. We do hope you enjoyed this tour. Thank you and goodbye.